0: This week's number one. Gen Z's number one most searched term on Spotify is, get this, sad. As a result, Spotify created a playlist called Bummer Summer. No joke. I have a child that is Gen Z, and when I ground him, I force him to go outside and socialize. Welcome to PropG Markets. Today, we're discussing Arm's IPO, Instacart's S1 filing, and Salesforce's earnings. Here with the news is Prop G Media Analyst
2: Ed Elson. Ed, I have this new sensation. I am happy to see you. It's great to hear. I've been so sad without you. It's been, life's been meaningless and dull for all of August. I'm, I'm glad you're back. I get it. I understand. I think everyone can empathize with that. Are you going to keep doing this, this whole take an entire month off of work thing
0: yeah I've done it for a few years you don't get anxious that you're not working yeah I get restless I try and do some writing I'm actually really good at doing nothing it's like a core competence but I like to at least have some deadlines and try and do some stuff I think I did less this August than I have done I don't know since I was in college where I did I was outstanding at doing nothing in college but now yeah, I'm glad to be back at work. Any exotic experiences? Mm, not really. We are in Colorado and then we were in Nantucket. Nothing that interesting. I was in Mykonos. So how was Mykonos for you? It was, it was epic. Epic? What does that
2: mean? Seven days of um, not drinking and not partying. Just hanging out. Wholesome fun. What? <laughs> what happened?
0: It was all a blur. It was great. The only thing I know for certain was that dude... Yeah, never mind. <laughs> Break down the news, ad, Save me from myself here. All right, let's start with our
2: weekly review of market vitals. The S and P was down. The dollar rose. Bitcoin dropped, and the yield on ten-year Treasuries climbed. Shifting to the headlines, China expanded a ban on government worker use of iPhones due to cybersecurity concerns. The country is one of Apple's largest markets, accounting for 19% of its revenue. Shares fell as much as 7%, wiping out more than $200 billion in market value. Warner Brothers Discovery slashed its full-year adjusted earnings guidance by $500 million. The company says that cut is owed to the writer's strike. Meanwhile, CNN is launching 24-7 live news on the Max streaming app. CNN Max will arrive just more than a year after CNN Plus was shut down. And finally, Lionel Messi's Miami debut drove 110,000 new signups in one day to MLS Season Pass, which Apple has exclusive rights to distribute. Apple CEO Tim Cook credited Messi on the last earnings call for his contribution to Apple TV's subscriber growth. Scott, I actually saw Messi play at the Red Bull Arena a couple weeks ago. Do you have any thoughts on this? So we'll go in reverse order. You know, American soccer, the MLS,
0: whatever they call it, everyone's waiting for tomorrow to be today. And a lot of people think the league will never uh, reach the same heights as other leagues in Europe. But I, I just think it's wonderful. I think it's a win for him. It's a win for the MLS. It's a win for his family because they get to hang out in Miami. And just the power of celebrity and social media, you know, celebrity just continues to be... Something that's very monetizable. So I'm nothing really there, other than it's fascinating and fun. Best news that happened in a while. In terms of China, we're in a you know we're in a full blown shooting match, trading war now with China, where Montana bans TikTok, and we're talking about banning TikTok. And this was an attempt to say, okay, the most valuable company in the world that's headquartered in the U.S. actually has more employees in China, and it's also the second largest consumer market for your phones, just beyond the U.S. So Apple's been largely protected by Xi, I think, in the CCP because they see the company is just so integral to their growth. And I think they have a great relationship with them, their supply chain. I just got to think there's literally millions of people who are directly or indirectly get their living in China from Apple. But I think they've decided, look, uh, that we need to send a signal that every time they punch us and you know, fuck with us, specifically ByteDance, we're going to fuck with them. But this is a full-on Kind of non-shooting, non-shooting war, if you will, and it's a shame because I mean, there's few things that could lift more people out of poverty than China and the U.S. getting along, because the cocaine and champagne of our incredible consumption culture, their emerging economy, their manufacturing and supply chain prowess with our innovation and intellectual property, creativity—you know—we could kind of just we could create just a ton of shareholder value, a ton of jobs that would absolutely lift both boats and lift all boats globally. War is expensive. And this is this is the type of war that, you know, it's felt a thousand different ways where it's, you know, the cost of something, costs are going to go up. And that means fewer people, I mean, it's a standard of living for everyone across the world is going to go down when we have trade wars like this. At the same time, I think China has definitely kind of outed itself it's not our enemy, but they used to be our competitor, and now I would see them squarely as our adversary. And I think what will be really interesting is how they respond if we do, in fact, get close to a TikTok ban. Let's move on to Warner Brothers Discovery. So this notion, and it's just hilarious, that it's the writer strike is the reason why they've lost $500 million. This is David Zaslov. I mean, here's the real story. I'm David Zaslav. I wanted to live in Hollywood and have a Porsche and get invited to the Academy Awards. And I was willing to do a stupid deal and overpay and bail out at and who did even a stupider deal and overpaid even more. And now I'm going to blame the, my melting ice cube of a shitty business, specifically cable television, where the ad rates continue to fall and advertising revenues continue to fall. I'm going to blame it on the writer strike. And I don't doubt that the writer strike hurt these guys. And what's interesting is that the notion that Netflix is on the same, quote unquote, side of the table as Time Warner and Disney it's just ridiculous because I believe every day the writer strike goes on, it does hurt Time Warner, it does hurt Disney because they can't go to the upfronts and sell advertising because they have no new programming. Whereas Netflix, who gets a great deal of programming internationally, 10,000 people producing content in just Madrid alone and a content queue that is just so dramatically deep I think Netflix loves this strike. Their cash hoard, their cash pile has grown so fast because they have this kind of reduction in content production that they're going to do additional share buybacks and the stock is up. So it's just hilarious that Time Warner and Disney, at least initially, are pretending to be on the same side as Netflix. If I were Netflix, I would just come up with all these reasons, thoughtful reasons around why we shouldn't end the strike. Netflix comes out of this a big winner, Time Warner a big a big loser. But that half a billion dollar loss, it's just uh, to be an ad supported cable is just a shitty business. I think where the model is headed is I have read something super interesting. The guy who started Five Hour Energy is now a multi-billionaire is going and buying these regional sports networks and essentially firing everybody and using AI to produce minimum viable content at a fraction of the cost. I think you are to see a lot of that. I mean, here at Prop G, we're talking about using AI to expand into different languages at what would have been several thousand dollars an episode to get an actor to read, you know, read and try and exhibit the sort of good looks and charm of Scott and Ed, respectively, (laughs) respectively. Now with AI, our crack tech team here has found the right technology where we can do this for, you know, much lower costs. And if it works, we're going to do it in Portuguese. And anyways, that to me is kind of the new model of media ground up using technology to do stuff kind of that's not as good, but 90% is good for 2%, 10% of the price. So what I think is gonna happen, what I think is gonna happen is that we're gonna go good bank, bad bank. And that is there's gonna be consolidation. I think it'll start at Viacom. I think Sherry Redstone has to find a strategy here and Paramount Plus actually does have a story. But what happens is in all these earnings calls at Time Warner, Disney, Viacom, is they talk about subscriber growth And they can kind of explain, you know, they can say, look, we're growing our streaming things. That's the future. It's really expensive. But I think the market will say, all right, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. At least it's growing. And then they spend the rest of the earnings call apologizing for the decline in business at their traditional cash cows that is cable. I think what they're going to do is spin those assets into new co. There'll be consolidation. Someone will come in and buy up all of these assets, whether it's the Cartoon Network or Or, you know, the learning channel or the food network, just all of these things, and cut costs and stop this consensual hallucination that these things are ever going to grow again and try and cut costs faster than the decline in revenues. Because the thing about these businesses, they usually go out of business more slowly than you think. I mean, Disney, Iger has basically said FX and ABC, he's put them in the front of the lawn and said, best offer, you know, no reasonable offer refused. Because what happens in these multi-headed you know, hydras with different companies with different business models is that people or investors hate conglomerates. And they'll look at these things and they'll find the shittiest business, which is the ad-supported cable businesses, and they'll assign that multiple of that value to the entire thing. When Peacock or Paramount Plus or HBO should trade at much higher multiples. So the, I believe that Paramount, Time Warner, Disney could probably shed these cable assets or sell them for a dollar, And within a year, their stocks would be higher than they are now, even without those cash flows, or if they could strike a good deal to get, you know, monetize or securitize those cash flows in the sale, because their story would just be cleaner. I think the CNN launching a 24-7 live news on the Mac streaming app is actually the beginning of a very innovative idea. And that is, if I were CNN, I would become like Intel inside. And that would say, okay, I have a newsroom. I have the best newsroom in the world. And if Netflix, you Netflix or Apple TV or Amazon pay us X dollars, in exchange for that, you can put a little CNN logo on your app or on your service or on your platform. And at any point, someone can just click on it and click business, politics, culture, and get, you know, a 10, 15, 20 minute loop that's updated twice a day during a normal day, 12 times a day during the insurrection. Because the thing that kills these things is the cost of having 16 hours a day of programming. And what they really should do is people don't want all that programming. CNN should say, we're going to bring you the best news in the world because we have the best newsroom in the world. But for two, five, 100, 300 million dollars a year, Apple TV Plus, you can have access to just plug and play news. So and I think this is a start. I think having the ability to be on HBO Max and just click a button and have over the top, tighter, commercial free news I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's smart, and I think that's, if you will, how CNN creates a lot of value.
2: We'll be right back after the break with a look at Arm's IPO.
1: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO, Mike Gitlin?
2: We're back with ProfG Markets. The biggest IPO of the past two years is just around the corner. Last week, British chipmaker Arm, spelled A-R-M, kicked off its roadshow and revealed it will go public at a target valuation of $52 billion. For context, other companies of that size include Chipotle, Lululemon, and Dell. ARM specializes in smartphone processor designs. Its clients include Apple, Google, NVIDIA, and Samsung. And each of those companies have agreed to buy shares at the IPO. Its largest shareholder, though, is Softbank, the Japanese investment firm run by Masayoshi Sun. We'll get to Softbank's involvement in this deal in a moment. But first, Scott, you predicted that the IPO market would pick back up in the second half of this year. It looks like you were right. We've seen a Slight pickup recently. There were 15 U.S. IPOs in July, 11 in August. That's up from 2022. Do you have any initial thoughts on either ARM as a business or on this IPO? So,
0: I mean, there's two things here. The first thing is indisputable. It's a great business. Their chips power 99% of the world's smartphones. 70% of the world's population uses an ARM-based product. Their chips aren't just in smartphones. They're in other things, smart speakers, TVs, surveillance cameras, thermostats. And they also see growth in cloud computing. They receive royalty payments for chips, which have incredible margins. Licensing is 37% of the revenue. Royalty is 63% of the revenue. This also comes down to valuation. And that is, there has never been a drunken sailor like SoftBank in terms of just throwing cash at the wallet with crazy valuations. And they're supposedly targeting an IPO price range of 47 to about 51 bucks a share which would give it 18 times its trailing 12-month revenue. And NVIDIA trades at 37, but I would argue NVIDIA is radically overvalued. Um, so uh, what will what, be interesting is, is if SoftBank gets their money back or makes money. Because at some point, th- this is an amazing company, but at, at some point it
2: was a bad investment. The context here is that SoftBank, which is the Japanese investment firm we've talked about a lot on this show, largely because of how poorly they perform. They own around 90% of the company. And last month, they valued the company at $64 billion, which is around 30% higher than the expected valuation at the IPO. You were talking about that mismatch in valuation, the fact that they're going to go into the public markets 30% lower. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it
0: sucks to be a grown-up. They got to get money back to their investors. They have to fund stuff. They're not meant to be, you know, they're not. They're in the moving business, not in the storage business. And that is they need to move shares at some point out and recognize valuation for them. And the market has just changed dramatically. In addition, I, I would argue Masayoshi-san is the worst investor in history he got incredibly lucky on his stake in Alibaba. And let's be honest, that was luck. And then everyone assumed, oh, he must be a genius. And he began to prove that he's a terrible investor over and over and over again. And that the people who invested in SoftBank, I mean, it's just show me a company that just makes no fucking sense, but raised money at a billion dollar valuation. And there's a one in two chance it was funded by SoftBank. It's just this craziness infected all aspects of the organization so i doubt they'll get their money
2: back it it feels like at least not for a while so just the history of softbank's involvement in arm they acquired arm back in 2016 they acquired it for 32 billion dollars and then they immediately sold 25 percent of that stake to their own vision fund which is softbank's tech focused venture fund, basically. And just a side note, when they, when they made that trade, Master son told analysts, you can say, um, quote, you can say almost with confidence that it will grow 5x in five years. That obviously didn't happen. But something strange is that last month, SoftBank bought back that stake from its own vision fund unit that's where we saw this $64 billion valuation. M- my question to you, have you seen that before? Why would SoftBank be transferring its stake in a company between different units and essentially buying it back from the Vision Fund? What's the point in that?
0: There might be something administrative here around tax treatment or a change in strategy And one asset it makes more sense than the other. What it also might be is a purposeful head fake to the markets. And that is they want to send a signal that smart people value this company at $64 billion. The The last two rounds that we work were nothing, in my opinion, but jazz hands to say, oh, no, this company is worth $35 or $40 billion because smart people are investing capital at this valuation. And you, dumb shit, retail investor, should value it at 55 because here's the momentum. I think that's probably what happened here is it wants to send a signal to the market. It wants to send a mark. In addition, they might be out raising money. And when, you, when you're raising money, the potential investors want to look at your returns and your returns are based on marks and you get to mark your assets at the most recent valuation. I'm on the board right now of a company and we just closed around and I found, I said, this is ridiculous that we're raising, trying to raise at this valuation. Let's raise it a more sane valuation, even if it's a down round and go raise more money because the company needs capital. And I think things are going to get worse. And what was clear is that the previous investor, who was the largest shareholder, would rather raise less money and would rather participate himself at a higher valuation so he can mark his book and his stake at a higher valuation, even if that valuation doesn't make any fucking sense. So he can then try and fly to Riyadh and say, I'm up 22 percent, not 11 percent, and you should invest more money. So. You really have to look. These related party transactions are fake marks. The only marks you can trust are marks where a round is led by fresh capital that is new capital into the company. And uh, they can get it wrong, but at least they think that is what the company is worth and that they're going to get a return on that investment.
2: So there's another company that's about to IPO, and that's Instacart. They just filed their S1. Um, and they're in a similar situation. So in 2021, they raised $265 million at a $39 billion valuation. But last year, they ran into some trouble, and they slashed that valuation first down to $24 billion, and then to $10 billion. Now, they haven't disclosed any price targets for this IPO, but This firm, Meritech Capital, did a nice analysis, and they found that at a roughly 20x multiple on EBITDA, and that's around where most of these grocery delivery stocks trade at, the enterprise value would be $15 Point being, it's likely going to be another massive reduction from the $39 billion valuation they received in 2021. Do you have any thoughts on Instacart's valuation journey? We're going to see a lot of this. Again, this is a great company, a pandemic
0: darling. They execute well. There's no reason, in my opinion, unless you enjoy it, for anyone to go into a grocery store. I think other than gas stations, grocery stores may be the worst retail. And they have innovated and they save people time. We've always said that the fastest way to build a unicorn is to build a time machine. This is a time machine. It saves people time. It's not worth $39 billion. It got out in front of its skis. What's interesting here, and I've been in this situation several times, is the unnatural acts that are spawned by down rounds. So an example... When you invest in a company and you're the last money in, you're paying a higher valuation, all right? I'm in the C round. The A round was done at a valuation of 10 million, the B round, 50 million, the C round, 150 million. And that's bad. You're you're paying more, right? But the good news is you get something called a liquidity preference, meaning that if you invest 10 million bucks, or let's call it 25 million bucks, in the C round at a valuation of 150 million, and then things don't go as well and the company gets sold for 30 million to another private company... The last investors get their full twenty-five million back before anyone else gets anything, and it waterfalls back until all the preps have been met, and then the common shareholders start to participate pari passu with everybody else. That is a wonderful thing to have. Now, what happens is, is if a company is going public, and this happened to be a red envelope at a lower valuation than what investors invested in the last round. They're kind of pissed off and they are think, well, actually, we'd rather you sell it to somebody else and then we'll get 100 cents on the dollar instead of 70 cents on the dollar. But the previous investors wanted to go public. And so there's some arm wrestling and some wrangling and sometimes some dealing. But generally speaking, what I say to entrepreneurs is be careful about raising money at a really big valuation, because granted, most investors, I'm looking at investment right now. And we're arguing over valuation. I'm like, all right, uh, you have to prove to me or show me how I'm gonna get 5X on this if it goes well. So, okay, be careful We you ask for. If you raise money at $150 million valuation, keep in mind those investors are expecting you to have a liquidity event in three to seven years at $750 million. And if you don't- What, st- what stage is this company that you're looking at? It's a growth stage company. So it's a company that's doing, it's a, a small VC-backed company, in a business very similar to to L2, so I understand it. The company's killing it, the founder's great, it just feels, smells, and looks like L2. And I'm like, okay, you wanna raise money at a $30 million valuation, how does this get worth 150 million with dilution of employees, how's it gonna be worth 200 million? Because if it's not, your last round of investors, unless this goes south, are gonna tell you to just stick with it and aren't gonna be open to conversations around an IPO or an acquisition until you get there. And I imagine there's a lot of that here because what happens when you go public is all of those liquidity preferences disappear and every share becomes the same. So anyone who's underwater or invested a large valuation would rather them keep going and not do the IPO unless they're fatigued and they just want to get their money out and they want some liquidity and the company will be worth more and have the currency and the capital to grow the business. And the early investors are dying for everyone to convert to one class of stock because then all those liquidity preferences ahead of them dissolve and go away. So there ends up being a lot of arguments and very pointed conversations and and, and intransigence In the boardroom, when we were going public at red envelope, the last investor had invested at a higher valuation than the IPO, and they wouldn't approve the IPO until finally it became clear, like, we have no other options. And keep in mind, it's lower than you'd like, but it's going to end up being zero if we don't raise capital at some point. The capital markets are friendly, so you're going to get, you know, would you rather get 70 or 80 cents on the dollar or, or 30 in two years if we don't? maintain momentum, have the currency for acquisitions and the capital to fund the business. This is gonna be a really interesting one because while they're trying to position as technology, it sort of is, but where I think they get most of their money is from advertising on the platform. And what's interesting is that the margins that drive grocery and even Amazon are not actual the sale of groceries. It's the equivalent of shopper marketing. So what do we mean by that? You buy diapers, there's like no margin on it. The store doesn't make much money, but what they make money on is Pampers will set up a cardboard cutout end cap and they pay the store to try and gain market share. Picture of a cute baby cut out of Tom Brady and a Bud Light end cap. They actually, shopper marketing or in-store marketing is actually a bigger business than brand-based marketing or advertising, which was shocking to me. And Amazon makes just a shit ton of money going to Pepsi and saying when someone types in or searches for Coca-Cola on the Amazon platform, would you like a Pepsi ad to come up? It's just an amazing business. And my understanding is the same is true of Instacart. I mean, just some stats on them. They. They have grown eight straight quarters, their revenue, their gap profitable for the last five quarters. So this is a good business. Online grocery, the category is growing. It represented 12% of the grocery market and that's up from 3%. We were really slow in the U.S. to get there and it was obvious it was gonna happen at some point. They've got about a 2.6% share of the overall U.S. grocery market and 22% online. And their gross margins exceed that of Amazon and Walmart at 75% versus 48 and 24 at Amazon and Walmart respectively but again a great business growing it just got out over its skis as a lot of companies did in terms of in terms of valuation it looks like it's going to go out at 15 billion so what is that that's a haircut of 50 or 60 at you know i mean at some point they had a 40 billion dollar valuation i mean that's a 60 point haircut and the analogy i would use is the grocery stores are sort of the cable companies of the 90s and that is you know, they don't make money selling content, they make money advertising against it. So think of the groceries, think of the produce, think of the meat, think of the cereal as content, and then they they run commercials against that content. 72% of Instacart's revenue came from transactions and 28% from advertising. But
2: that's probably misleading because I would bet the margins on that 28% Massive. are 90%. And, it's, and it's, it's, they've shifted that revenue. So th- that's been growing. I'm, I'm not sure what the original number was, but they've been sh- focusing a lot more on advertising because of those, the difference in margins.
0: And just look at an analog here. Amazon's advertising sales are growing faster than AWS revenue. Now, the amazon media group which sells ads on the platform brought in 11 billion in q2 Let mean, think about that 11 billion in one quarter up 22% while aws revenue increased 12% and the margins on the, that, those revenues must be enormous so instacart is you know is not in the business of grocery it's in the business of selling you groceries such that it
2: can sell ads against that content of produce and meat We'll be right back after the break with takeaways from Salesforce's latest earnings.
0: support for this show comes from NetSuite. If you own a business, money is often at the top of your mind. How to save it, how to spend it, how much you need, how much you don't need. But simple math will tell you that the less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a leading cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere.
2: We're back with Prof G Markets. For the past year, Salesforce has been through the ringer. In December, the co-CEO, Brett Taylor, resigned. The next month, they laid off 10% of the staff. And just weeks later, they were targeted by activist investment firm, Elliott Management. Elliott's demands were simple focus on profits, and cut costs dramatically. Well, it appears Salesforce has listened. The company's Q2 earnings report showed that quarterly net income rose from $68 million to $1.3 billion. That's a near 20-fold increase. Salesforce also reported a 31.6% operating margin and raised its annual margin guidance to 30%. CEO Mark Benioff had aimed to hit this milestone in 2025 and said that reaching it this year was, quote, nothing short of a miracle. Salesforce shares jumped 6% on the news. Scott, reactions to that?
0: So 2023 was supposed to be, or has been coined the year of efficiencies, and there's sort of bad, better, best. So the bad of this is Elon Musk, who laid off 80% of his force, and that's not the bad part of it. It's that he also incurred a 60% revenue decline. And then there's better, and that is Meta has cut costs dramatically. And here's the thing. A cost cutting is a lot of fun from a shareholder standpoint if, if there's costs to be cut. And when you stuff so many calories down the esophagus of a growth company that it develops fat everywhere, you can do one or two things to add the same amount of earnings. Say the operating margins are 20 points, which is very healthy operating margins. You can either grow your top line by $5 billion or cut costs $1 billion same effect to your earnings. So when you actually come to the conclusion that we're a little bit overweight, maybe even obese here, and we're going to go on a diet and it's not fun. And there's so much pattern recognition and expectation that we're going to keep investing, keep hiring, keep spending, keep growing. The the cost cutting can be just incredibly powerful, especially if it doesn't have an impact on frontline sales. So as we predicted last year, and, we'll, and we're sticking to this prediction, I think in Q4 of this year, you're going to see record earnings across big tech Because they've discovered the great taste of cost-cutting without the calories of losing revenue growth. Because there appeared to be just thousands, if not tens of thousands of people doing almost no fucking work. And then uh, this is kind of the perfect activist play. And Salesforce is really sort of embodies the best of this year of efficiency. And it also is sort of a testament to the power and the importance that activists play in the ecosystem. Elliot came in. Elliot needs a company where they can put billions of dollars to work because they've raised a shit ton of money because of their success. And they look at Salesforce and they're like, great company, great leadership. You just spent too much money and you're drunk and you gotta tighten the ship. And to a certain extent, I don't want to say it's a favor to Benioff, but it creates cloud cover for him to make really difficult decisions. And what they found is these difficult decisions were difficult from a personal standpoint difficult from a cultural standpoint, that's never known anything but growth and investment. But oh my gosh, was this a spring waiting to be sprung? And that is, does not appear to have affected their growth. So if you can maintain growth and cut costs at the same time, oh my gosh, champagne and cocaine for earnings as evidenced by the fact their earnings went up 20 fold. And this is perfect for Elliot. Elliott doesn't have to fire the CEO. They don't have to stick around a long time. They just go in and say, you obviously have room to cut costs. Mark says, "I get it. He does it. Elliot makes a shit ton of money, the stock recovers, and Benny seen as the is kind of taken him through the, you know, the haunted forest here and come out the other end fine." So I think this is, you know, this is where you say the market is a wonderful thing and capitalism works, but this is an activist play that appears to be working out for all parties. And while everyone's focused on Meta's cost cutting, the, I think the real example of kind of where it worked out for everybody, obviously except for the people who got laid off, but my guess is they're going to be just fine in an economy that has historically low unemployment. You know, this just kind
2: of this felt like win-win-win across the board. So you mentioned this idea of cutting costs without having to sacrifice anything on the top line on your revenue, which is true of some companies. It's currently true of Salesforce. We are seeing revenue growth, but you know. We'll see if that lasts over the next few quarters. But if you look at the entire SaaS ecosystem, it's it's sort of a different story. So they're all pursuing the same strategy, which is cut costs, focus on profitability. Three years ago, SaaS companies were averaging around 5% in free cash flow margins. That number is up to 13%. But it does appear that it has come at a sacrifice to revenue growth. So in 2020, in that same period, average revenue growth across SaaS firms was 22%. That number is now down to 15%. So is there an argument to be made here that maybe these software and SaaS companies are overcorrecting, that they're playing too defensive in terms of pursuing profitability, and maybe they should be taking risks and investing in new technologies and finding new growth opportunities so that they can expand revenue in the top line.
0: Well, so the question comes down to this. Is that decline in revenue growth a function of a lack of investment or the fact that the economy's just slowed down, things have gotten more competitive, and the kind of crazy big gulp grande vente ayahuasca trip that every small company was on with cheap capital that that is always a big part of a customer base for a SaaS company. There just aren't as many of them signing up more and more people for the Salesforce platform or what have you, or the Snowflake, or you know, name it. And so SaaS, just the SaaS market, which grew exponentially, that that growth is slowing down, regardless of how much money they threw at it. I would argue that the incremental or the cuts in expenditure did not have, at least in the SaaS market, is not the culprit. The culprit is the larger economy in the macro environment. And had they continued to make those investments, their growth wouldn't have been much greater. It's just their bottom line would have been much, much smaller. So my gut and the data I've seen is that these cost cuts were prudent and have had actually very little impact
2: in what the top line growth would have been otherwise. All right. Thank you, Scott. Let's take a look at the week ahead. We'll see inflation data from the Consumer Price Index and the Producer Price Index. And separately, another strike is brewing. 150,000 members of the United Auto Workers are set to walk out later this week if a new contract agreement cannot be reached with Detroit automakers. That includes Stellantis, General Motors and Ford. Do you have any predictions this week, Scott?
0: Yeah, I'm sort of into this idea of consolidation and good bank, bad bank across cable TV assets. And that is, if you look at Viacom, if you look at Time Warner, if you look at Disney, they all have good businesses and growing businesses. Their streaming platforms are too expensive, but there's a good story there. Like Paramount Plus is actually an interesting streaming network that's growing. Disney Plus is losing too much money but will have, you know, is a very solid value proposition. HBO is, you know, an incredible story. There needs to be recognition that cable TV assets are no longer teenagers that are going to keep growing that they're in fact, you know, nana and pop-pop and need to be made comfortable. These things are dying and they need to be managed for cash flow not starved of investment, but stop the hallucination that these things are ever going to reignite growth again. Uh, So my prediction is you're going to see one or more players shed their assets into a different hold code to clean up their story and also for consolidation and scale. There needs to be a bunch of these things wrapped together. So there's one sales rep in Czechoslovakia selling ads on the Cartoon Network or what have you and unmuck or you know, unfuck the story that is media companies now that have growth, but also have declining assets in the same portfolio.
2: I know you've had conversations with a bunch of big players in media recently. Do you have any inside scoop from those executives? I think everyone's landing in the same place that some, they have to do something.
0: That whether it's the strike, um, whether it's the war between Charter and Disney right now, the model is just broken. And the place it'll probably start will be Viacom. Sherry Redstone has seen her stock, I think, off, I think it's lost three quarters of its value in the last five years. She's gotta do something. And that's where it'll probably start. But I think all of them are gonna start shedding their cable assets or donating them or, I mean, these assets are now getting cheap enough where they become distressed assets where where private equity will probably start getting their pencils out and looking at them. And I think that's gonna happen in the next 12 to 24 months. This episode is produced by Claire Miller and engineered by Benjamin Spencer. Our executive producers are Jason Stabbers and Catherine Dillon. Mia Silverio is our research lead and Drew Burrows is our technical director. Thank you for listening to Property Markets from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Join us Wednesday for office hours and we'll be back with a fresh take on markets every Monday. gotta let the engine heat up you don't remember this because you're you're 14 but my dad literally when we would go somewhere and it was cold he'd say oh, i'll go start the car and get the engine heated up and he would go into the garage <laughs> Just turn on accent. the car <laughs> turn on the car and let it run for 10 minutes before we could actually drive that was the technology that i had to that i had to deal. i had a plymouth fury 3 that bitch was so sexy got like literally four miles to the gallon or four gallons to the mile and roll up windows like no power steering you like get a workout trying to just turn the thing and oh my god it had a V8 <laughs> hello ladies that was a that was a muscle car
2: we're going to work on your scottish accent as well there you go